Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 18th, 2018. This is episode 2294. And the title of the show is Words That You Have Heard From Me Before. No, that's not the title. The title is, comma, Words You Have Heard From Me Before, comma, What You Do Matters. What You Do Matters has been a theme in this show for as long as there's been a show. It was one of my original survival tenants when there were, where there, there were 10 of them. Eventually it became 12. And the final one has always been What You Do Matters. And in the survival tenants, it meant some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. But it was more about, listen, when it comes to a preparedness plan, what you do is more important than what I think you should do. But the bigger overriding message of that has been in the show for a very long time. And this is part of something called the 30 Laws of Life, or Spirko's 30 Laws of Life. And I'll save more on that for when we get into the main topic today, uh, as to where those came from and, and what that actually means when I say Spirko's Laws of Life. But as we've been putting these things out on Instagram, this is Spirko's Sixth Law of Life. What you do matters. And the reason I decided to talk about this particular one today is I was writing the, the sixth chapter of the book today, and I finished this one, so it's fresh on my mind. But as I was writing it and coming to the conclusion, I talk about, and we'll talk about this more today, how those four words have saved lives in this audience, and not because somebody was prepared for a disaster, in a very far more deep, meaningful, and tangible way where I have been completely humbled at some of the things that I have been told those words have mean, meant to people. And we'll get into all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is BulkAmmo.com. I say it all the time, but I say it all the time because it's effing true, guys. You got a gun, you got no ammo, you got an expensive club or something you can barter for money. But it can't do what a gun's supposed to do without any ammunition in it. Right? We all know that. That's why when you start hearing new rumblings about uh, new gun legislation or something, yeah, guns kind of go up in price and, and stuff like that. But what happens really fast is ammo becomes hard to get. Because most people have some guns. And the gun's going to last. You take care of it. Guns outlast people. But ammunition is another story. So you want ammo. You want to be able to run your gun to train. You want to be able to run it to feed yourself. You want to be able to run it to protect yourself. So you need ammo, so get on over to BulkAmmo.com. They have all the common calibers you could ask for. Uh, you have lightning-fast sh- uh, lightning shipping. They have great pricing and incredible customer service. You can find it all at BulkAmmo.com, and they do offer a discount for members of the MSB. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine. Self-Reliance Magazine walks you through the path towards self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and personal liberty. Brought to you kind of by the second generation of folks that originally brought us Backwoods Home Magazine, which we had in our lives for over two decades. 
Self-Reliance Magazine is the next step in that journey. Really incredible stuff. Check them out today. You can find the, the website at self-reliance.com. And they also do a discount for members of the MSB. You can find that discount in the benefits section of your MSB account. All right, before we dig into Spearco's Sixth Law of Life, let's uh, talk about a day in history. Uh, David Verne does not have a year in history for us, so we will do a day. Uh, this day in 1975, September the 18th, Patty Hearst is captured. Here we go. Newspaper heiress and wanted fugitive Patty Hearst is captured at San Francisco apartment and arrested for armed robbery. On February the 4th, 1974, Patricia Hearst, the 19-year-old daughter of newspaper publisher Randolph Hearst, was kidnapped from her apartment in Berkeley, California by two black men and a white woman, all three of whom were armed. Her fiancé, Stephen Weed, was beaten and tied up along with a neighbor who tried to help. Witnesses reported seeing a struggling hearse being carried away blindfolded, and she was put in the trunk of a car. Neighbors who came out in the street were forced to take cover after the kidnappers fired guns to cover their escape. Three days later, the Sibonese Liberation Army, or SLA, a small U.S. leftist group, announced in a letter to a Berkeley radio station that it was holding Hearst as a prisoner of war. Four days later, the SLA demanded that Hearst family give $70 in foodstuffs to every needy person from Santa Rosa to Los Angeles. This done, said the SLA negotiators, would begin, uh, begin for a return of Patricia Hearst. Uh, Randolph Hearst hesitantly gave away some $2 million worth of food. The SLA then called this inadequate and asked for $4 million more. The Hearst Corporation said it would donate the additional sum if the girl was released unharmed. In April, however, the situation changed dramatically. <coughs> When Patty Hearst declared in a tape sent to the authorities that she was joining the SLA of her own free will, later that month a surveillance camera took a photo of her participating in an armed robbery at a San Francisco bank, and she was also spotted during a robbery at a Los Angeles store. On May 17th, police raided the SLA secret headquarters in Los Angeles, killing six of the group's nine known members. Among the dead was SLA leader Donald DeFries, an ex-convict who called himself General Field Marshal Clinique. Patty Hearst and two other SLA members wanted for the April bank robbery were not on the premises. On September 18, 2005, after crisscrossing the country with her captors, or co-conspirators, for more than a year, Hearst... Uh, was captured in San Francisco apartment and arrested for armed robbery despite her claim that she had been brainwashed by the SLA. She was convicted on March 20, 1976, sentenced to seven years in prison. Her prison sentence was commuted by Jimmy Carter, uh, as she, and she was released in February 1979. One of the better things Carter did, in my opinion, honestly. Uh, she later married her bodyguard, not really surprising there. In 2001, she received a full pro uh, pardon from President Bill Clinton, also something that I think is probably uh, one of the better things Bill Clinton did in his, his life. Um, this is an interesting one. So the question for people was at the time, and as this has been examined throughout history, Did she have anything to do with it in the first place? Did they really kidnap her, or was that cover? Was she part of it? And it doesn't look like there's any evidence that she was part of it from the beginning. So then it becomes, did they win her over with their argument, or was this basically Stockholm Syndrome gone awry? I think it was kind of probably both. She was a spoiled, rich heiress, and they probably showed her what poverty looked like in the country. But when you are held captive... And if you are, specifically if you're not seriously abused, the captive becomes both your captor 
and your protector. This can happen when people are abused too, but the less abuse generally, the more this becomes the case. The captor becomes the protector. And therefore, you form a bond with the captor. And the captor who has nothing of your, your good intentions in, in their heart whatsoever, they, they are using you, still becomes some sort of an authority figure and even a, a figure that you actually become comfortable with. Uh, this has been widely reported in many kidnapping situations and things like that. Now, so you would say, okay, well, if that happens, then maybe she shouldn't have spent any time in jail at all. Well, then you also have to say, well, okay, even once that happened, did the person know that what they were doing was wrong? Uh, because just because you've won me over doesn't absolve me from you know my responsibility if I take a gun into a bank. Right? However, I, I still think in this instance, this person... As long as she wasn't involved, and again, it doesn't appear, there's never really been any hard evidence that she was, didn't ask to be kidnapped. And at that point, that person becomes the victim. And while there might be some accountability, seven years in federal prison um, because you were kidnapped and brainwashed, I, I think is a bit excessive. I, I made the comment about the bodyguard. And what I mean by that is like a person that went through all this, like a, 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 a strong figure, Someone who is seen as a, a armed protector would probably, you know, it's kind of like a, a daddy's issues thing at that point that you would have that type of an attraction for. Though I, I don't really know or claim to know this woman's life or judge her, but it does kind of fit in with today's topic because so many people are so loyal to the state. <laughs> and if you need me to draw the lines to make them connect together to you for that one, I will just let you figure it out as we go through today's episode. On that note, what I wanted to do today is take <clears throat> excuse me, take a trip uh, back about six years to 2012. In 2012, there was a, a video that came out that, that got a lot of play on cable news stations. Glenn Beck played it on the radio, etc. And it was, um, it was called, If I Wanted to Destroy America. And... It talked about all these things that actually were being done as being what that this person would do if they were trying to destroy America. And I, I listened to that with dismay because I thought, okay, well, what's your point? Your point is there's people out there that, that don't appreciate what we have here, that want to change it and radically transform it into something else, and uh, that those people are actively working on making this place worse. That's your point? Because that's been the case since our founding. The only reason we have a Bill of Rights is after they wrote the Constitution, they went, oh, crap. Look at all this talk and muck going on over here. We need to prevent these people from coming in and using this new Constitution that we have to interfere with people's rights. There were actually two sides to that debate. One said, you know, if we do this Bill of Rights thing, Sometime in the future, people say, well, you don't have a constitutional right to that because it doesn't say so. That's where the Ninth and the Tenth Amendments came in. Uh, and then the other side said, hey, if we don't do this, look, there's already rumblings about disarmament and things like that. So let's get this down. Let's all agree to this. Let's put further restrictions on this new monster that we've created we call a state. And in my opinion, cooler heads prevailed, and we did end up with the Bill of Rights. And that, to me, is really a blessing, because I, I think this country would be full-on Marxist by now without that. 
But even with all of that, I was just like, okay, so what's the solution? What's the solution? So as I was talking about this one day on the air, I decided right in the moment that since all of the talk in popular media at that point was about this video and how to destroy America, that I would talk about how to save America. About What you're about to hear right now is, is from a video. We took an excerpt from the show, and a couple different listeners made videos of it. This one was made by Dean Brock, and uh, it's still online. You can go look at it if you want to. I have a link in the show notes. But it's just that speech, and this was completely unplanned and completely unscripted. And I want you to listen to it and kind of feel the emotion that came out in it. And then I want to come back and I want to talk about how the whole thing relates to this sixth law of life called what you do matters. What I think we can all agree on is we've looked over the last few months to last few years. We've seen many of the things in this video happen that have absolutely nothing to do with direct environmentalism, like farmers having their farms shut down, children told they can't wear a shirt with a picture of the American flag to a school, Businesses being told to remove the American flag over and over and over and over again. Examples of people stepping on the throats of average Americans, average small business people, and we've watched the ass clowns in the government get away with it. They got their heads rolled in the last election, and 50% of them immediately went out and got jobs as lobbyists. They have more influence and are higher paid than ever before. Whether you think that the problems pointed out in this video are accurate or not, the problems are such that we all have to admit together that it's clear that the people in control want more control, they want us to have less control, and indeed, they have set a course for America to fail. There wasn't a single solution in that video, though. And when we look at what the people are doing... To our fellow Americans across the country and we complain about it, we yell about it, we get angry about it. There is value in that because anger creates action, but there's no solutions there. It's Friday afternoon. You just heard some pretty somber stuff. I think you need to hear some solutions. So my response to if I wanted America to fail, I'm going to call if I wanted to save America. If I wanted to save America, the first thing that I would do is teach every single American that would listen to me that they have internal power. I would teach them all that no one can take it away. I would teach them that a law is only a written command by another man, and any law can be unwritten, and any law can be challenged, and any law can eventually be defeated. I would teach them that laws get passed unjustly when men are afraid. And that men become afraid when they worry about feeding their family or feeding themselves. Men become afraid when they worry that someone will come take what they have or harm them or harm their children. But that when men are not afraid, when they stand up and they know they can care for their families, they can care for their children, they can care for their wives, they can be the leaders in the home that they're supposed to be, they don't capitulate. They don't compromise. They hold their ground. I would teach them that the solution is not in any way currently existing in the beltway around the District of Columbia or the state houses across America. I would teach them that their solution is not in government. It's in their own homes. It's in their own backyards. That's where the solutions are. I would teach America to plant trees and gardens that produce food for themselves to eat everywhere and every place they can. 
I would teach them that even though everything that we talk about is true, that they're coming to take away people's pigs, they're coming to take away people's gardens, they're actually doing this crap at the local level, the federal level, the state level, all over the place, that it's very damn hard to come put somebody in jail for a garden if everybody in that neighborhood is standing in the front yard going, I don't think we're going to let you do this today. And if we start having each other's backs, the fear transfers from us to them. I would teach them that we have already developed a pattern that you should know that you can go out and do these things that people like us will have your back, do have your back, and we will act. That if you attack an old lady with bone cancer, you'll put a blight on your city for a decade. We'll come through for that person, one way or another. If you try to put a lady in jail for a front yard garden in Michigan in a city where you can't even keep the freaking lights on five days a week, then thousands and thousands of fellow Americans from across the country will call you and tell you they're paying attention to what you're doing and they will support that person with a legal defense fund and shove it back up your ass. If I wanted to save America, I would teach my fellow Americans these things. I would teach our children to be good citizens in their schools and obey the rules, but question every damn thing a teacher says, especially when it's supposed to be an education and it's an opinion. When they're told so-and-so was bad, ask why. Ask how do we know that. Ask is there another side to the story. And whatever they're taught and whatever they have to put on the paper to get an A, I would tell them to write that down and then come home and talk to me about it, talk to you about it, and find out the real truth. I would teach Americans to once again discover their own history, to accept their own faults and their own mistakes. If I wanted to save America, I would admit that we screwed some things up, that we oppressed people on our own lands. And I would teach people about the battles that were fought for equality, fought and won, and the amazing, immense opportunity that was created when those battles were fought and won. And that the time to fight those battles is in our past, not our future. Now it's the time to unite and do things. I would teach America that when somebody says the things I'm saying now, and another person says them, and another person says them, and they're heard, The people behind the desks that make the decisions that say they won't let you quake in fear. Because they know it's not they won't let us. It's they know the truth is for this long we've allowed them. We've allowed them to act. We've empowered them. We put them there. We paid for them. We can change it there, but we got to change it right in our own homes first. Right with our own children first. If I wanted to save America, I would teach every person within the sound of my voice to be self-sufficient and self-reliant and take care of themselves and their families first and then to take care of their communities and their neighbors and then to take care of their cities. And I would teach them to take their cities back first. I would teach them that what these clowns are doing at the federal level doesn't even really matter right now because it's too big, they've got too much power, and they've got too much control, and it's time to take the power at the city and the town level back for the common person and then turn that apparatus of government on their counties and then take their counties back and then take the county government and spin it around so it's not coming down your throat and put it down the throat of the state and then demand that the state stand up to the feds. But it's a bottom-up approach. It doesn't start in a picket line. It doesn't stop or start with an Occupy demonstration. It starts with you. If I wanted to save America, 
I would teach Americans to once again be proud to be an American. I would teach them you do not have to be proud of the actions of your government or the mega corporations running your government or the lobbyists running your government to be proud to be an American and to be proud of what America is. If I wanted to save America, I would teach Americans that America isn't a place with borders and laws and government. America is an idea that created a place with borders, laws, and government. And that those borders, laws, and government were to exist to serve the people who had the courage to have the idea and make it real. And I would teach them that there's immense amounts of things to be proud about from that. I would teach them to once again value their flag, even if they're opposed to a war fought under that flag, to realize the flag is not about war. The flag is about the freedom that it's supposed to represent. And if you're not happy that that freedom's not there anymore, take it back. And that's the big thing I would try to teach America if I wanted to save it. I would teach them that nobody will give you your freedom back. You must take it. You must claim it. You must do it in your own lives. You must be bold. You must be decisive. You must be willing to act. And you must not let fear get in between you and doing what you dream of doing, what you really believe in, and teaching your children the same thing. In fact... I could sum it up this way. If I wanted to save America, I would simply teach Americans to act like Americans. Okay, with that, there's a few things in there that are temporal. They're time-based. They're, they're rooted in 2012 and things that were going on. But overall, I think the message is really universal. That in the end, there, there is only so much the average person can do. Focus on what you can actually get done and worry about yourself. Focus on your own backyard. You have, an, like every other human, you have internal power and you can do so many things. And instead of worrying about what other people are doing that, are, that is outside of what you control, focus on what you do control. But you know what? That whole speech can be summed up with the words, what you do matters. And like I said, this is all going into a book. And I want to talk a little bit about, before I get into this core message of what you do matters today, why I'm writing this book and a little bit about these laws. So I'm writing this book because now doing this show for 10 years, I realized that there should have been a book a long time ago. That's one thing. Another reason is that I really want to help people. I really want to help people And I know the logical thing for me to do would be write a book on how you can get your house ready for a disaster. I've got hours and hours and hours and hours of free content on that. I know it might make a decent book, but there's also tons and tons of books on it. This show is not really about how to prepare for a disaster. I, I, I summed up this show because I had to come up with a way to explain it. In the very early years, when we used to go to do you know events and workshops and, and, and things like that, with it is a podcast about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and personal liberty. And those things are sadly lacking in America today. And, and I think the demographic that they're the most lacking in is young men and women from their late teens to early 30s. And while this book will be for everyone, that's who it's really for. As I was writing it, Dorothy initially said, you know, a lot of this stuff, man, you know, 15-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds need to hear this stuff. They, they lack the clear guidance of a strong male figure in their life, and they need to hear these things. 
and I was writing it, and I've been handing the chapters off to Dorothy to, to read, and she said, boy, you're, you're writing at really a high level for people that age. And I said, well, I'm not going to bring it down. If people that age want to come up to it, fine, but these things need to be explained at this high level. And, and to me, it really is for late teens to early 30s is the, like the core demographic. And I think those people have so much of their life ahead of them, and they need to be hit with all of these things, but specifically understanding that what they do matters. And I want you to understand something about this, because I've been putting these out on Instagram, and what I've been doing is in Instagram we're doing a photograph with the, the kind of like a meme. You know, Spirico's Sixth Law of Life, What You Do Matters. And there's a picture of me speaking or something like that. And then what we're doing is we're putting out a one-minute video. So the one that we're way ahead of six on Instagram and Facebook and, and all social media. So the one that just went out yesterday was don't do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people. Many of you who have listened to this show for a long time go, ah, that's Frank Sharp Jr., And I don't remember where he said it, but he got it from somewhere else. Masada Yubu has been on the show, is fond of saying, this is a law that's been around a long time. Okay? Spirico's laws of life are not laws that I created. They're laws that I've observed in many different ways from many different sources that I've made core and intrinsic to the way I live my life. One of the laws is always keep your word. Well, I'm pretty sure somebody said that before me. The first law is always be on time. Because when you're late, you're saying your time is more valuable than the other person's time. I'm pretty sure someone else said that. So I'm not claiming to be the author of these laws, or even in some cases where I'm probably the first person to ever phrase it that way, the law still existed. Because the other thing about these laws is they are natural laws. There's two types of laws that we think of, and really there's three in the way that I explain it. But the first way, when you hear a law, is a law of man. This means the government passes a law and says, Thou shalt not do this thing, or thou shalt have thy ass punished by being thrown in a cage for two years, or whatever else they come up with. That is a law of man. And something that is completely okay to do one day, and completely free of any meaningful consequence can be life-altering the next day because of the stroke of a pen. In other words, the laws of man are artificial laws. They are created laws. And the same process by which they are created, they can be destroyed. Any law, and that was in this, right, in this little speech that I gave six years ago, any law created by a man can be taken away by a man. If it can be written, it can be unwritten. Okay, Natural laws... I break down into kind of two areas, scientific law and just straight-up natural law. Both of them are the same thing. But a scientific law that's been put down as a law, it's gone past the theory, is an attempt by man to codify in some way this natural law so that it may be understood and passed on to others. Gravity. You drop shit, it falls. I've explained it that way for years. Gravity doesn't give a damn whether science understands it or not. Gravity does what gravity does. Okay, So even though science has codified the law of gravity, it is, it, gravity does not require science to codify it. These laws that I'm coming to you with are that way. And the reason that's an important distinction is to understand that man-made law cannot trump natural law. For instance, the Congress could decide that they don't like the fact that gravity kills people when they fall off a roof. So they pass a law. 
And they say, from this day forward, gravity shall not affect any individual within the United States of America or its recognized territories that speaks the words, screw gravity. At that point, this person may jump from a roof, float in the air as they say fit, and not plummet to the earth. And if gravity shall disobey this law, for each infraction it shall be fined up to $10,000 and face 10 years in prison. So we say on this day in Congress, blah, 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 blah. And if you can get the idiots to actually write that, and God knows you probably could sneak it through because a lot of shit they don't read. But if they actually did that, it ended up as a rider in a bill, and then the president, not looking at it because it's 1,800 pages, it's supposed to be about one thing, signs it. No one points out to him the stupidity is written in there. By the way, something very similar happened in Texas State Legislature long ago. Just saying this kind of thing could happen. Let's say it was done intentionally even. That everybody in government knew that they were passing the stupid law. Okay. The day the president signed it and executed it into effect as a, a law of men, you can now walk up to the roof of your, apart, your, your, your house and completely legally say, screw gravity, and you can jump off the building and you will plummet your ass to earth because natural law is not concerned with your understanding of it, with whether or not you've tried to explain it, with whether or not you recognize it, or with whether or not you say it's wrong. Natural law has its consequences. And when you jump off of that building, it might be legal, but you're breaking the law of gravity so soon you will break your freaking neck. See how simple that is? These laws are like that. They are natural laws. You don't have to obey them. Gravity does not require you to obey its laws. But gravity's laws exist, and you are not free of the consequences of that law regardless of what any other person says. If you want to break the laws of gravity, you can't. There's no such thing. People say, well, they broke the laws of gravity when they made an airplane. No. They understood the laws of aerodynamics and were able to work within the laws of gravity. You see how that works? That's how these things are. And these laws that I have are not things that you must do. These are things that if you do them, the consequences in your life will be beneficial. And if you break them, Long enough, long term, the consequences in your life will be bad. For instance, even though we're talking about the sixth law, let's talk about don't do stupid things with stupid people in stupid places. Okay? What I said in my little video for that is, the, this was like the shortest video I did. Even though it all can only be a minute. I said, you know what? You break this law, you end up with one of three names. You end up being called the defendant, the patient, or the departed. And you don't want to be any one of those three. See, if you break this law... It's, you, you might end up breaking a law of men and get arrested. But many times you can do stupid, place, stupid things in stupid places with stupid people and not actually violate any laws of men. The consequences sooner or later of a life ignoring this law will catch up to you because these are natural laws. They care not that I explain them. They care not that you understand them. They just are. And they work this way because people work this way. Karma's real because if you're a dick to people, long enough, there will be a significant number of people that will be a dick back to you. If you're good to people, then sooner or later you'll have a lot of people that are good back to you. That is real karma without any metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. Because, again, this is a natural law. This is how humans as a species act. So that's what we're talking about today. Now, this lesson, again, a lot of this I've talked about a long time over the year, a lot over the years. Um, and I want to start out, and this is stuff I said in the first year. 
the America of the 1970s compared to 2018. At the time, it was compared to 2008. Nothing's changed. It's gotten worse. Do you remember sitcoms? Maybe the early 80s, but it was really the 70s and the 60s. We were, we were watching those shows in reruns and syndication in the early 80s. And we had all these different shows of all these different people in different walks of life. You had shows like uh, Little House on the Prairie that was like a frontier town, you know, and, and, and people that were just barely getting by. Uh, we had shows, you know, that were, were people doing a lot better. But we had shows like, you know, The Waltons would be another example. There were shows about inner city. Uh, Good Times was one that I'm specifically thinking of when I, when I kind of point out this distinction. And at some point, there would be some sort of family-level tragedy. And at some point during that, there would be a suggestion from somebody, often the matriarch of the family, well, maybe we could apply for assistance. Maybe these people can help us out or whatever. And the man would always say indignantly, we have been through hard times before. We will be through hard times again. We will always get through them. This family doesn't take charity. And there was always some version of that into almost everything in the, the TV and movie culture of the time if it was part of the storyline, if it would fit. You probably wouldn't see that in a sci-fi thing about robots, but it didn't fit. But if it fit, it would be in there sooner or later. Now look, I don't advise you to get your education from the idiot box. I really don't. And I don't advise you to look at that idiot box, that television set, that movie screen, and so I'm going to base my life on this stuff. But what it is always ends up being a reflection of the culture of the time. You go watch the original Twilight Zone from Rod Serling in black and white. It's on uh, Netflix. Pretty interesting stuff. It's from the 1950s. Every other episode's about what? Nuclear war. Why? That was the biggest fear people had in their hearts. If you look at the, the, the video culture ever since TV's been a thing, all the way up till today, the things that are most important in people's lives are the things that are there all the time. You look at it for what it is today, it's pretty sad. But what you won't find, and I defy you to do so, in the last 30 years is an example of a patriarch in a family in the storyline standing up and making that, that statement. We don't take charity. We will solve our own problems. Because it's been wiped out in America. It's been wiped out. And it's sad. It is the most fundamental underlying thing that makes a person capable of solving problems. And this stems from, and here's the switch. Here's what actually switched in America. The belief was, at one time, no matter what happens, it's my responsibility to fix it. And it is today, since I didn't cause the problem, I'm not responsible for fixing it. When I worked for Lockheed, there was one of the buildings that I worked in as a contractor. There was a sign up on the wall, and it said, it is never not my job. And somebody cutesy went in there and wrote with a crayon, wrote, like, except when it's not my job. <laughs> But that concept of it's never not my job, it applied to the things that you actually can touch and do something about. And it's, it, it's sad because what this makes me think of, I've seen people like, you look out in their backyard and there's like a Coke can laying in their backyard. You're like, dude, is there a Coke can in your backyard? He goes, yeah. Did, did you just throw a Coke? No, I don't drink Coke. That stuff's disgusting. How'd it get there? I don't know. Don't, 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 you, 
Don't you think you should go pick it up and throw it away? Eh, I just don't feel like it because I didn't throw it there. Dude, it's your backyard. And that's how people like, well, it's not my fault I got laid off. But it's your responsibility to find a new job. It's not my responsibility that a tornado hit my house. But it's your responsibility to figure out how to take care of your family. A little proactive preparedness is a good idea, but no matter how much that worked or didn't work, in the end, when something bad happens, it's up to you to deal with it. It's that one mental switch that's created a society today where we're more worried about who the next Supreme Court justice is than what's actually happening in our physical backyard. You're not going to change that. You can make all the phone calls you want. You can write all the letters you want. What can you actually do? What you do matters. And this is why it's important. What you do matters in a very proactive way when you focus on the things you control. But what you do in regard to things you don't control also matters. It won't change that thing, but it will impact your life. Every bit of energy you spend screwing around with this thing, whatever it is, or worried about this thing, wherever it is, instead of spending it on your own life and the things that are important in your own life, every second's wasted. You can't get it back. In some ways, think of it like this. It's like you went on vacation. You decided, I'm going to go to France, Paris. So you spend $5,000 for a five days in France trip. Night five, you're going to stay overnight, fly home in the morning. So you got five full days in France. Day one, you get up and you pull out a bunch of maps and brochures of all the things that you can see while you're in France. And you don't know what you want, so you order crappy room service. You sit in your hotel room all day long going over, like, should I go here or there or what time is the best time to go to Louvre or whatever it is. And by the end of the day, you've never left your hotel room. So you didn't actually do anything, right? So if what you do matters, then not doing something, well, then it wouldn't matter. No, it completely matters. You just wasted 20% of your time and 20% of your money. You just blew a thousand bucks in a day doing nothing instead of getting out and seeing stuff because you were sitting there trying to figure it out. Let me put it this way. Can you see how that's a stupid way to run your vacation? Okay, I'm thinking everybody's out there like like right now somebody's looking at you while you're in your car nodding your head and there's no one in there with you because you're listening to your car, you're at work listening on your earphones or something and you're doing your job and you're nodding your head. Like people are looking at you like, what the hell is he not? Okay, so we agree, right? That's a stupid way to run your vacation. Well, why can't you see that's a stupid way to run your life? Like if, if living your life that way, focused on the shit that doesn't matter to the exclusion of the stuff that does and breaking this law, And you know that's dumb when you condense it down to five days. It's a little easier to let it slide when it's five years or 50 years. But we all only get so many years. Do something with it. Law 30, by the way, is make the most of your dash. The other thing you need to understand is what you do doesn't just affect you. And that's good and bad. It really is. I'm going to tell you why I think this might be the most powerful of the, of the laws of life that, I, that I'm working with here on this book. When I started doing this show, and I realized it was going to be the thing that I thought it was going to be, 
I thought, you know what, Jack, there'll be days when you, you know, do a speaking engagement or you go somewhere or you meet people or you do something like that. And someone's going to come up to you and go, man, thanks a lot because of you I started a business and I got this going on. And that's going to be a great dividend. You're going to feel really good about that. Or you're going to have somebody come to you, man, like because of you we had like, you know, backup ba batteries and we had food and water and stuff. And there was a storm and we got stuck in the house for two weeks, but we were fine. And thank you for that. And then that'll be, you know, that'll be great. That'll feel good. That'll be a big dividend in return, you know. Or because we were on the side of the road, but we had spare gas, or we had a medical kit, or whatever it was. We had a bug-out bag, and because of that, we were able to take care of our kids at the hospital when it was an emergency, or whatever it is that it would, that would happen. Like, none of that was all humbling. It all felt great. It was all, it was all, it all felt better than I ever believed it would. But none of it surprised me. What surprised me was pretty early on. I think it would have been about 2010, maybe 2011. I did a uh, expo in Denver, Colorado. This is the first place this ever happened to me. And a man walked up to me. We talked for a little bit, making small talk. And when the booth cleared out a little bit, he looked at me and said, I want you to know I owe you my life. I really didn't know what to say. And uh, I thought, well, maybe, you know, he had a med kit and he would have bled out. I don't, I don't know. He goes... If it wasn't for you, I would have killed myself about a year ago. I, I don't know if you've never experienced that, if I can explain what that's like. It's, it's, it's humbling. It's, there's a buzz in your ears. Like You don't know what to say. You, you, you just, you know, you get chills. You're like, I, you know, and he said, um, I had come back from Iraq. I had issues with uh, seeing my kids. Uh, I had issues with dealing with life. I laid in my bed with my .45 in my mouth. And uh, in my head, I kept hearing, what you do matters. What you do matters. It was you, and you wouldn't go away. You wouldn't leave me alone. You wouldn't let me do it. All I could hear is, what you do matters. I thought of my kids. I thought of my life. Put the gun away. I planted a garden. It was a small step. Got my kids in my life. Built a great life. In one year, I'm a different person because of those words. And I was like, man. I mean, I was, I was so grateful. And I was so humbled. But I also thought, well, that's, that's a fluke. Guys, it's been dozens of those experiences. Dozens of those experiences. And sometimes it's things that are related to this, but it's not just this. I had one guy recently tell me, he said, you know, He said, I was ready to stroke out. My doctors were worried. They thought I was going to have a heart attack or a stroke and die. And I was so wound up about everything that was wrong in the world. And the circle of control, circle of influence, circle of concern. He said, I heard that. And you'd said it before, but I heard it this one day. And it just gave me permission to let go of the things I didn't understand. And he's like, I don't have any blood pressure meds now. Like, I, my life is great because I let go. But what you do matters came into that too. But when it's a decision not to take their own life, I and, and the level of responsibility there, I, I, it's hard to explain. But what you do doesn't just affect you. And what you don't do doesn't just affect you. Again, it's been dozens of people that have told me this to my face. Let's say half of them are exaggerating. And let's say half of them would have found some other reason to not do it. 
That's still a lot of people that may have made the ultimate wrong decision if I had chosen not to get in that car, stop doing what I hated, and start doing what I loved. These words, what you do matters, don't just change lives. They save lives. And I find that to be incredibly empowering. And I find it to be incredibly sorrowful as well. The only way those words can change the lives of people is for people to have forgotten that they are true. To have been so disempowered that they literally believe what they do does not matter. And when I think about it that way, it makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't you consider ending your life if you really believed that your day today was as bad as it's ever been, it would only ever be this bad or worse, and that nothing you would ever do could change that? The only antidote to that poison is, it's not true. What you do does matter. And that's incredible. And what you need to understand, and this has become a theme that when I started writing the book, I didn't know it would be in there. You or specifically your brain, we need to stop thinking about it as a biological organism, even though that it is. Because that doesn't really help us in understanding how to live our life. If you're a doctor, it might help you in how to save somebody's life. But as a human being, if you don't understand that in essence what you really are is a self-learning computer, then you don't take charge of your programming. Now, think about this. There's a reason that all that shit in TV and radio, the people that produce it, they call it what? They don't call it entertainment. They don't call it education. They call it programming. It's called a program. And they call it programming a computer because it's the same thing. The information that is fed into you, your brain takes it in and it uses it. And it links up with millions of other lines of self-learning algorithmic code that you've developed over your whole life. And if you don't become aware of the fact that your brain is constantly writing and rewriting code, and if you don't accept the fact that when you... So when I was in computers uh, testing and stuff like that, we'd have a feature we wanted added. And we go to the developers and say, it's not a big feature. Just add it. And I said, you don't understand. There's 50,000 lines of code that go into this piece of equipment. I can't just throw 20 more lines in there and not have it affect the other lines. We can do it, but it's more complicated than you think it is. Because A affects B and B affects C and C affects D, and you're like, I don't care, just do it. I can go get you another purchase order if you get it done. But in the end, they're right. The more self-learning a computer is, the more this is true. You have a certain way that you base your life on your certain knowledge. If I give you a new, a genuinely new piece of knowledge, it will forever affect how you react in a way that it directly affects anything. But sooner or later, you're going to find something that's one off of it. But now you're going to pull back and rewrite that line of code on the fly. Your brain will do that. Form a new synapse and decide, okay, this is how we must perform this action now. If you're not aware of that, if you're not consciously saying to yourself... I am going to set this intention. I'm going to make this plan. Then all that shit's done by somebody else. And this is what ends up happening. You end up like a ship that was shoved in the general direction of where you want to go, but then the crew just all went and screwed off. 
they don't really have autopilot, but they kind of have the wheels set in the general direction of, you know, they're coming from China, they're heading to San Francisco port, so they kind of take a bearing towards San Francisco, get the ship up to speed, and then everybody goes and plays shuffleboard. That's how most people live their lives. They don't understand what they do matters. Because this is easy to see when a person's failing to understand this, when they're down on their luck, when they're hurting. Because there they are. Their life's miserable. They could do something, and they're not doing anything. You can see it in yourself, because we know intrinsically we're depressed or whatever, and we know we want to fix this, but we can't, because we're just in a cycle. But we know, like, okay, I am part of this. But when life is generally decent, we tend to just go along. And the longer we do that, the easier it gets to do nothing and just go along and be reactionary rather than being proactive. And so that ship that came out of China was supposed to have a captain. And that captain was supposed to say, here's the seas we're going to go through, here's the currents, here's the weather conditions, here's the top speed of the ship, here's how we can run it, here's how much fuel we have, here's the capabilities of the crew, here's our time at sea, here's the port we're heading to, I'm going to reach out to the, the, the harbor master over there in advance of that and say this is our scheduled arrival. And then 99% of the time, that ship will pull into that port exactly where it's supposed to be, exactly when it's supposed to be there. The one that just goes out to sea and then throttles down in the center of the sea and points it forward, assuming it doesn't hit another ship, and assuming there's enough food and water on the ship for the crew to get by while they play shuffleboard and get drunk, it's going to get somewhere. Especially if every once in a while they kind of like, hey, hey, look at the bearings off a little bit. Hey, Joe, turn it like 20 degrees. All right. All right, get back down here. Let's go. Come on, I've got another round of play, right? And that's how people live their lives. It's going to get somewhere. Is it going to be California? I don't know. Is it going to be San Francisco? It's possible. It's also possible you'll win the lottery by stepping on a sticky ticket somebody threw out in the, the, the parking lot and didn't know that they had the winning ticket. But it's not probable. You could be somewhere in South America. You could be somewhere good. You could be somewhere okay. But you're not going to be where you plan to be. And depending on how much time you stop playing shuffleboard and look up and get your drunk ass to straighten the wheel out, you might get even closer You know, you might end up in L.A. or something, San Diego, at least in California. You're not going to be on time either, though. And there's going to be so many opportunities along the way to make corrections to get what you want that you didn't take. This is America today. And this is why when something goes wrong and we didn't do it, we expect somebody else to fix it, even though it's our responsibility. And you are a self-learning computer, and you need to be writing the code. So if you're in your life and you just one day say you're not happy, you just decide, you know, I'm really not happy with where I am in life. The average American will do one of three things. There's some other stuff, but there's three common things they will do. One, they will go out and buy some piece of crap. A car, a boat, some plastic shit, doesn't matter. They'll go out and spend, they'll try to spend their way to happiness. They'll move, get a new house, whatever it is. They go out and buy something. Consumer-driven economy. We talked about that a lot over the 10 years. The second thing that we, people do, they run to the doctor and get some medication so that they feel better. Now look, there are certain mental illnesses that I do believe can benefit from the use of pharmaceuticals. I think it's like 5% of the cases is what is prescribed, but in those cases I think they are a valid treatment option. The other 95%, really not so much. Because you do not have a deficiency in Ritalin. Okay? A human, like, the, the normal amount of Ritalin or any of these other drugs, it's just the one that springs to mind, 
you know, Valium, whatever. The normal amount of those substances in the human bloodstream is zero. It's not like they, you go in there and you're like, oh, you know, I, I, I feel like really good and all. Like, oh, let's, let's, let's run an SRI uh, 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 test on you. Oh, what's that? Serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Let's see what your level of SRI in your blood is. Because the normal number is zero. You don't have a deficiency in SRIs. So that's, that's a band-aid on a gangrenous wound. Something's wrong deep underneath. It might make you feel a little better to cover it up, but it doesn't really fix the problem. Or they just accept life and they live with it and make a few minor course corrections and go back to playing shuffleboard and being unhappy. Now, since the computer's a brain, or the, since the brain is a computer, you can write code into it anytime you want to. And to understand that, you need to understand that the way we think is with words. And the way we code our computer is with words. Words are that powerful. And what I mean by that is if, if you were thinking about, I'm looking at my fish tank, so designing a fish tank. You might at some point see the design in your mind. But you'll probably get there through words. Well, it's going to be a 55-gallon tank. Now you have the dimensions in your head. And you actually speak in your mind words. It makes me wonder what, how humans thought before we had words. What was it like? You know, just as an aside. But you speak those words. And then you might say, well, then how do I get a 55-gallon aquarium? And then you'll start making a plan to go get one. Well, everything else in life works that way. So let's say when, you, when you're not happy, instead of doing one of those three things, which are inherently stupid, all three of them are stupid. And when you hear the solution, most of you probably know it from years of listening already, but when you hear the solution, it becomes abundantly clear why those are profoundly stupid ideas. You should say to yourself, self, why am I unhappy? How many people are unhappy so they go do something without ever asking what's making me unhappy? Because if you remove that thing, you might not be like spit on your neck, flop, fall down fantastic happy, But you're probably going to be less unhappy because that thing that's making you unhappy is gone now. So why am I unhappy? What's in my life that I don't want? Or what's not in my life that I do want? So you say to yourself, I want, or computer, how do I get this thing X out of my life and this thing Y into my life? Let's plug in some variables. Computer, how do I get debt out of my life and more travel into my life. Because what you want is to be able to travel more, and you want to get the debt out of your life. The second you make that command, your brain's going to go, processing, hey, stupid, those two things are related. Did you know that? Right? Like, you can't travel because you're broke, and you're broke because you're in debt, and you need to take money to go travel. And to go travel, you need to take time off work. So since you need to take time off work, you aren't paying the debt, which is already a problem, so you got to solve the debt problem first. Okay. Well, then you'll say, well, yeah, I was listening to Jack for a long time, and he always talks about this Dave Ramsey snowball method. So to get the debt out of my life, what I need to do is take my smallest debt and pay every extra penny I can scrape up on that debt. And when that debt goes away, I'll just take all of that money and apply it to the next debt, and I'll just keep doing that until I'm out of debt. Then when I'm out of debt, I can take all that money and save it, and then I can afford to travel. And then you might say to yourself, okay, well, that's going to, you know, you'll do the math. Then you'll actually know what you're dealing with. Shit, that's going to take three years. It's a lot longer to continue to be unhappy than I want to be. How can I do this quicker? Oh, Jack talks about side hustles. Hey, Uber's everywhere. I have a car. Maybe I can become an Uber driver. 
You take your spare time and you make $500 a month. And you say, well, well, now I can pay off all my debt in 18 months or 12 months or 14, whatever it is. And it's, it's double compounding because not only are you following a debt snowball, not only are you making extra money, but since you're working, you're not screwing off spending money. Since you're not bored sitting around wanting something to do and lamenting the fact that you can't go to Luxembourg, you're out hustling and moving people around. You're also talking to people and you're improving your knowledge of things. And whatever, when you get out and do stuff, you generally don't feel as bad as you did before. The best thing you can do for a depressed person is get them up and get them moving. Again, I'm not circumventing true psychology and psychiatry, and I do understand there is that smaller portion of people that do need that type of assistance, but the majority of people in America today that are, I'm depressed, you need to get up off your ass. You'll be less depressed. So you do all that, and then all of a sudden you've you got the extra money coming in. Well, if I, I got the debt paid off, I just keep doing that for a while and I can go travel. See, this hypothetical situation isn't hypothetical at all. It's actually a short version of a better version that I experienced last year. Last year, Dorothy and I went to Asheville, North Carolina on our vacation. And we stayed in a hotel, and the hotel was about five miles from downtown. And I don't believe in drinking and driving because I don't want to go to jail and I don't want to hit someone and kill them. And I'll, I'll be honest, that, that with the amount I drink when I go out, I am more concerned with going to jail and hitting somebody and killing them. I'm not going to be tore up driving anyway. But it don't take much, one mistake, to blow a .08 or higher, and your life is screwed up. And as I've said, every other option, other than a DUI, is more fun and less expensive. Okay, A helicopter ride to the Hilton will cost you less money than a DUI, and you will have more fun. So following my own advice, which I try to do, we decided, well, we have a rental car for bouncing around and stuff. When we go to dinner, we'll take Uber. We'll take us downtown, we'll walk around, we can do some stuff, we can have a few drinks, it's a vacation. When we come home, we'll be in another Uber, and we won't go to the house of making you sad, right? So that's all working, and I always talk to Uber drivers. I'm interested in what they're doing, because it's an interesting side hustle. I talked to this girl. It was almost exactly what I said. She had student loan debt. And she's like, nah, screw this. So she started Uber driving the second, like the last half of her senior year, and just stockpiling against her debt, right? So as soon as like she finished, she was that first debt payment. She made like a huge payment on it. She did it for like another six months. She paid off all her student loan debt. Uber driving. And she's like, wait a minute, that's kind of cool. So she wanted to travel. She didn't know where she wanted to live and what she wanted to do with her career yet. So what she was doing is she would find a place, like Asheville, for instance, pick a time of the year where it was a nice time to be there, but not the peak of the tourist season, just enough that she was going to make a good nut on the, on the Uber money. But the cost of staying there was a little less. She's using Airbnb and finding short-term housing options. And if that happened to be a, a, an extra bedroom in a house, fine. She'd live there, work Uber, and she only worked the peak hours where she could make the most money. Paid for her living expenses and stockpiled her savings and just tore the place apart with enjoying herself and learning about it and meeting people and finding out about it until she's like, okay, I'm done here. Pick the next place. She'd go there. And I think she was saying it was easier to do to transfer her credentials with Lyft. In a new state, you had to reapply with Uber or something like that. But she was just kind of bouncing from one to the next. And she said, I'm going to do this until I get tired of it. 
By then I'll have dozens of places I've visited, and I'll know the place I want to live, and I'll move there. And I don't have to worry about whether I'm going to have a job or not. I'm going to have a great driver rep with Uber and Lyft. So I'll be able to just start driving right away until I find the job that I want. Man, that chick was the captain of her ship. She knew what she did mattered. Is that not like a more uh, useful version of the old, oh, I'm going to go backpacking across Europe when I graduate high school, uh, college. Spend a year or summer backpacking across Europe. Spend a year being broke, staying broke, and getting broker to see Europe. Or spend a year or two years making money, hustling your way across this great country and finding a place you want to plant your roots and live. Does that work for everybody? No. She had no long-term relationship. She hadn't started a career yet. She was young. She had that adventurous spirit. You'll find your answers when you enter the proper code into your computer and you ask the computer for the answers. And when you do that, you're setting the expectation. What I do matters. My actions are more important than anything else. And the truth is there's never been a more powerful time to make the best use of this law than right now, this second, today, here. Think about it. What I just told you that girl did. Let's go back to 1993 when I got out of the Army. Was that an option? That whole scenario I just laid out for you doesn't exist. There is barely an Internet, and most people are not on it. Okay? There is no Airbnb. There is no Uber. There's a way to do what she did. Moving around, doing odd jobs, get the newspaper, look for... But it's nowhere near as easy. It's nowhere near as boilerplate. Think about things you can do today. You can go out and find places where you can find shit cheap and flip it on eBay. You can even find stuff sometimes that's like in good quantity in a store, like a, a clearance store. They have 30 or 40 or 50 of them there. You don't have to buy any. Take a picture of it, stick it on eBay. If it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell. If it does sell, you go buy it and you ship it. How the hell are we going to do that in 1993? Let's look at my podcast. So my career for the past 10 years has truly been a career in broadcasting. I am a professional broadcaster. I broadcast a message in the form of a podcast, and I make my living doing it. People can love me, people can hate me, but you can't argue with the fact I'm a professional broadcaster. So let's say in 1993 when I got out of the Army, I into my, my mental computer I said, you are perfectly suited for a career in broadcasting. How can you make that happen? What was I going to come up with? Well, probably take student loans, get a degree in broadcasting or go down and beg for some sort of entry-level position at the radio station, even if it's pushing a broom. But a broadcasting degree is probably the best pathway forward for this. And then you can get an unpaid internship for a year, schlepping coffee back and forth to rude people. And maybe if you kiss the ass of the right person at the right time the right way, they'll give you like a 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. slot or something. And maybe then you can segue into something else. And if you're really, really good and you sell your soul properly and you're a totally obedient slave to the system, maybe you'll become syndicated and be known across the country and be successful. That's 1993's pathway. 2008's pathway. I'm going to take a $20 recorder. I'm actually a $30 recorder and a $20 headset. Spent 300 bucks on hosting for the first year. 
Give a guy 500 bucks to make a website for me and a logo and just give it a go and record my show in my car. I'm going to use free software to edit it. And in 18 months, I have a thriving, growing six-figure business. Now, I'm not saying that to, to, to point out like how great I am because I'm not. Okay? I'm just saying I couldn't have done that in 1993. I don't think I could have done that in 1998. That path was unavailable. There's so many things that are available to us today to take this, this attitude of what you do matters and go do something with it. And it's not just about business and it's not just about employment. It's about everything in life. You want your family to eat better? Plant a garden. You want to get out of a toxic relationship? Leave. Right? You want to find somebody to be in a relationship? Go look. Right? You want to learn something? Read a book. Watch a video. I want to be a musician. Are you putting out a piece of music every day on YouTube? No. Then you don't want to be a musician. You want to talk about being a musician. If you believed what you did mattered and you really wanted to be a musician, you'd make music and put it out there for people. I'm not that good yet. You'll get better by doing, so stop sucking and start doing. What you do matters. It is that simple. And my question as I finish up today for you is, since what you do matters, what are you going to do? What are you going to do today to be one step closer to that place you really want to be? What are you going to do today to be one step further away from that thing you don't want to be attached to anymore? What are you going to do today to make sure you see the things you want to see in your life before you're gone? What are you going to do to make sure you're leaving the right legacy behind for your children and your grandchildren? What are you going to do with this incredible opportunity that is life. And if you're 80, you still have as much opportunity as you have opportunity to breathe. You will reach a point where you don't have it anymore. We all reach that point. That last day, that last hour, that last minute, whatever it is, until you're there, you're not there yet. Do something, damn it. Do something. Because what you do does matter. It doesn't matter if it's what I would do. It doesn't matter if I like it. It doesn't matter if I like the result. It matters that you want it, you like the result, and you intended for it to happen. And by God, when you get to a point in your life where you have two choices, try this thing or do nothing. Try this thing. Be smart about it. Don't do stupid places and stupid, with stupid people. Right? Don't do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people. Balance it with the other laws. Don't go do what something that's really dumb. But if you have something you can try, even if you need to be careful about how you try it and have an extra strategy, try it. If it doesn't work, come back to the point you are and try something else. No matter how you got where you are, no matter how much it's not your fault, every single bit of what comes next is your responsibility. Period. It was never any different. Because the law doesn't care if I explain it or if we codify it or not. It doesn't care if you understand it or not. It is not a law of men. It is a natural law that applies to men. You can break it. You can break this law. It will not be enforced by men with guns. 
It will not be enforced by a fine. It will be enforced by consequences. I can do a lot to help you understand that, but I can't do anything to prevent you from one day sitting and looking back at those consequences and going, I wish I would have. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I hope you enjoy the work that we do. I'm not going to talk about items today or anything. I just think it's not the right show for it. I want to leave you with this. I want to go to our song of the day. I believe in synchronicity. I believe in providence because I keep seeing it in my life every day. And I, I believe that is because I am aware of the potential and I am looking for the possibility. And I have seen it happen over and over again with John Adams' selections for the song of the day. And there is no way I could have planned this because I did not know what I was going to talk about today until about 15 minutes before I decided this is what I was going to do. And John put the list together that has this one on it like a week and a half, two weeks ago. And the song at first may not seem to be really related to it, but it is. The song is Troubadour by George Strait. And a troubadour is basically somebody that writes music, a lyricist, a poet, etc. The main lines in this song that really convey the entire meaning of it are just two of them. He says, I was a young troubadour when I wrote in on a song, and I'll be an old troubadour when I'm gone. You know what that means? I love what I do, and I'm going to do it until the day that I die. A person that makes that statement is happy with the life they've chosen. This is the thing that I was meant to do, and I will do it forever. And even when I'm gone, it's what I'll be remembered for doing. I'm not retiring, because I have no desire to stop. How many people don't even think of retiring? They think of getting out of what they're doing. I'm in this thing, I'm in this world, I'm in this industry. Do you want to retire there? Oh, hell no, I'm looking for a way out. Life's too short to be doing a lot of things for a long time that you're trying to get out of. If they're stepping stones, by God be clear they're stepping stones. But get to that point where you can say, I was a young fill-in-the-blank when I started this journey. And when I'm gone, I'm going to be an old version of that thing. Better, more experienced, tired, having passed it on as much as I can, but this is what I'm going to do forever. When you do that, and you combine that with the knowledge that what you do matters, you can build a hell of a life. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I still feel 25 most of the time I still raise a little cane With the boys Honky tongs and pretty women Lord, I'm still right there with them Singing about the crowd and the noise Sometimes I feel like Jesse James Still trying to make a name Knowing nothing's gonna change what I am I was a young troubadour When I wrote in on a song 
I'm gone. 